you have a Bible, I invite you to turn to Romans chapter 7. Sorry for those of you who are having to sit in our overflow or to, in our welcome room. I'm glad you are here. Uh, we've had a lot of obstacles just to get here today. I've heard there's races. Our 8 o'clock service power kept going on and off and alarms going off. It was, it was a lot of fun. Let me tell you where we're going to be uh, for the next few weeks or months uh, we're going to finish Romans 7 today, uh, and then next week we begin our Advent series. Um, one of those weeks, my friend Alton Hardy, he's going to come and he's going to preach to us. Uh, come the new year in January, we'll be back in Romans and we get to look at Romans 8, which is what I consider the most glorious chapter in all the Bible. We're going to spend five, six weeks there. Uh, then come February, we're going to hit Romans 9, talk about predestination and split as a church. And so... <laughs> I just want you to know where we're going. So this Sunday, though, we're going to be in Romans 7, and we're going to look at what Paul has to say about our ongoing struggle with sin. Uh, and I find his words to be incredibly encouraging. And uh, if you struggle with sin, which I hope you do, uh, you will find these words to be encouraging as well. Uh, I will say this. It's a very complex argument that Paul is about to lay out for us. Um, every word matters. Every word is precise and also nuanced. Uh, Paul's going to split some theological hairs for us as we read through this. Uh, but, but don't worry. Um, what we're going to do this morning is we're going to kind of zoom back and look a little bit more big picture here because that's where I think we can spend um, the best use of our time. Romans 7, I'm going to read half of this section now, and then I'll read the other half later, beginning in verse 7. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin, for I would have not known what it is to covet. If the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive, and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it killed me. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. This is the word of the Lord. You would pray with me. Father, we pray that through your spirit we would be able to hear and to understand the words that we have just read. Because these words are from you, and they are our very life. And so I pray that my words would fall to the ground and blow away and not be remembered anymore. Lord, may your words remain, and may they change us. We pray this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. So Paul begins this section with once again talking about the law of God, raising a question about it. And basically anticipates this question. Paul has been 
seemingly so down on the law in these last couple of chapters, uh, people are beginning to wonder, Paul, do you even think the law is good? You certainly talk about the law as if the law was evil. To which Paul responds, absolutely not. He says, I needed the law. I needed the law in in, in my life in order to reveal to me sin. That was one of the purposes of the law. It was like a a flashlight exposing the darkness of my hearts. And that's what the law does for us. He says in verse 9 that he was alive apart from the law. Meaning that before he ever read the law, he actually felt pretty good about his life. He was alive. He thought he was a good, moral, decent person. But then the law came and it revealed the ugliness that was in there that Paul had been unaware of up to that point. Uh, Suddenly, this, this sin in him came alive and he died. All right, so clear as day, isn't it? Paul's argument, right? Let me give you an illustration that I, I hope helps with this. Um, and I've actually got a prop for this one. I've never really used a sermon prop, but uh, it's, it's the end of the year budgeting time. They say if I don't spend it, I can't have it next year. So, um, so I blew the entire budget on this. I want one of you to put this sign out in your front yard tonight. Okay, I want one of you to just go and just to set it up there and to put it out there in your front yard tonight. Uh, what do you think would happen if you did this? That's right. People are going to throw rocks on if, if I, you know, I've lived in the same house for over 20 years. If I were to put this sign out in my front yard tonight, even though for 20 years I have never once had anyone throw a rock on top of my roof, I guarantee you about two or three in the morning, I'm going to wake up hearing rocks hitting my roof. Why? Why? Well, tell me, what do you want to do when you see this? <laughs> you know why? Because you're evil. <laughs> I mean, it is. you're an evil person. And so you see this and you're like, nobody tells me what to do. I mean, that's their first thought. And you're mad at me about that. And then the second thought is this. That sounds like fun. I mean, like you never once before in your entire life have thought about it. But the law came and it woke something up in you. You now want to do it. Now, is this, is this a bad commandment? The answer is no. This is, this, is, this is a really good commandment here. Nobody's disagreeing with that and thinking, oh, that's just a bad law. No, it's a good law. But what did the law do? It stirred up this desire in you to break it. Now, it did not create that desire in you. It didn't create that sin. You already had that sin. It was lying hidden. It was lying dormant. Like you couldn't really see it. The law of God came and all of a sudden it came to life. And you could finally see sin for what it is. The law of God exposes the depravity of your heart. But the law itself is perfect. Now for Paul, this was particularly true in the 10th commandment here, thou shalt not covet. He never even knew that coveting was wrong. And then he gets this commandment, thou shalt not covet. And now all of a sudden, all he could think about is coveting. It's like it came alive in him. It shed a light on the darkness of his heart. Now up to this point, I believe that Paul has been talking about his life before he came to know Jesus, pre-conversion. 
And one of the reasons I think about, I think this is because up to this point, verses 7 through 13, all of his verbs are in the past tense. But now, as we move forward in the next section, beginning in verse 14, he's going to begin speaking in the present tense. So in the past tense, the law was there. It exposed sin came alive in him. But now he's going to talk about his struggles. After he was converted, his struggles with sin. So look at verse 14. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. All right, so once again, Paul's pretty clear here, isn't he? I mean, it's, it's a really hard argument to follow. Uh, if, if you want to have the cliff notes to what we just read, just go to Galatians 5.17. Paul summarizes all of Romans 7 in one verse. And let me just read that one verse to you. He says, For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. So there he summarizes all of Romans 7 in, in just one verse, which is why Galatians is so much shorter than Romans. Uh, it's almost like Paul wrote Romans and somebody said, you really should flesh that out a little bit, or read Galatians, like you really should flesh that out more. And so he wrote all of Romans chapter 7 to kind of flesh that out for us. But these are obviously words written by someone who is deeply conflicted within himself. Someone who deep down loves God's law and can't figure out why he doesn't obey it. He, he loves it, but he has such a hard time keeping it. Uh, about a month ago when I was um, really beginning to study for this sermon, I pulled out an old book I've read several times before. It's Robert Louis Stevenson's uh, Jekyll and Hyde, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. It's a classic. Uh, it's one of those books that uh, most people know about and hardly anyone has ever read. I would encourage you to read it. Uh, for one, it's a classic and it's only 70 pages long. And so it's a really easy read and you just said you just read a classic. Uh, so read that. But in that book, Robert Louis Stevenson is writing about Romans 7. Now, Romans 7 is the inspiration for that book. 
Uh, the book, the, the plot is this. There's a scientist named Dr. Jekyll who is really frustrated with his life um, because he feels like there's two people inside of him. Two, two people that are like constantly bumping heads. There's, there's a side of him that really wants to do good. And then there's this side of him that actually delights in doing evil. And they're battling it out with one another all the time. Now, as a result of having those, those two different people inside of him, uh, he says, well, you know, the, the good news is he's never entirely bad. He's never entirely evil. But at the same time, he's not ever entirely good. And so he decided to, as a scientist, come up with some potion to split the two. So he could be purely good, and then he can also have this purely evil side. And so he does. Uh, but the evil side of him surprised him. The evil side was far more evil than he ever imagined, and a lot stronger. That evil side was called Mr. Hyde, short for hideous. And, and he had no control over that, that evil nature, that evil person there. And uh, that person even went on to go and kill someone. But that duality of persons there, doesn't that feel very Romans 7? When you read Romans 7, I mean, doesn't that imagery, like, doesn't that help you make sense of it? There's this, there's this Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde inside of us, two natures, if you will, just kind of duking it out. But let me ask you, is that an accurate picture of a Christian? Now that we've been made a new person in Christ, now that we have had the Spirit of God inside of us changing our hearts, is there still this powerful, old, sinful person or flesh, if you will, that's in us, that's just evil and hard to control? I mentioned that I believe verses 7 through 13 are talking about Paul's life pre-Christ. And beginning in verse 14, he's talking about his struggles with sin as a believer. But you need to know that this has been hotly debated pretty much ever since Paul wrote this. I mean, before the ink was even dry, the church was already debating the meaning of these words. And there were some that would argue that, whoa, there's way too much bondage to sin for Paul to be describing a Christian. And another would argue, well, there is way too much desire for good for Paul to be describing a non-Christian. And I've actually gone back and forth with this over the years. And ultimately, I've landed on this not only being um, the description of a Christian, but being the description of a very mature and growing uh, Christian. Uh, besides the, the change of tense that we have, in which Paul switches and moving, uh, describing everything in present tense, I also see a change of language there and how Paul talks about the law. I mean, now he wants to do what is right. And in verse 22, it says he delights in the law of God. I've never found anywhere else in scripture a unbeliever delighting in the law of God. Delighting comes from being given a new heart, being given a new spirit. And then I think the strongest argument for Paul here describing his life as a Christian is that he ends this section in verse 25 with the words, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Kind of hard to say that if you're not a believer. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And then he gives this summary statement. I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh, I serve the law of sin. So why does any of this really matter? 
Well, you need to know that when you became a Christian, your struggles with sin just began. They didn't end. They just began. Uh, Yes, you have a new heart. You've been given this, this new spirit. You've been freed from sin. And now for the very first time in your entire life, you can obey God. You're a child of God. And this is the real you. This is the new creation. This is the one that you identify with at your deepest level of being, that you are his child. However, that old you is still lingering around. There's a battle on. There's this war waging within you. I mean, you feel that, don't you? Can you at times you just, just feel that battle, that, that tug of war between what seems like two people within inside of you? You didn't used to have a tug of war because when you were enslaved to sin, all you could do was sin. It wasn't a struggle. There's no struggle because there's only one side of you. You freely gave in to sin. You were enslaved to it. Now that you have been free, well, you can obey God for the first time and you are now struggling with sin. You are fighting it. And now when you sin, you hate it. You didn't hate when you sinned earlier. But now you sin and you absolutely hate it. This is what Paul means when he says that you do the very thing you hate. You no longer delight in sinning like you used to before you came to know Christ. Now when you sin, you're like, ah, dang it, that's not me. I mean, at the deepest level of your being, you're like, that's not me. Why did I do that? Who will set me free? Personal confession here. I, I, I thought by this point in my life that I would be far more advanced. <laughs> I'd, I'd have far less struggles than I do now. I thought there would be far less woe is me's. I... I I can still say the most hurtful things to people at this stage of my life. And I've been a Christian for over, for almost 40 years now, but I still say hurtful things. I still get jealous. I could be jealous over another pastor's giftings. Sometimes I could be envious when another pastor receives praise. I'm like, where did that come from? Sometimes I could doubt um, how God's going to provide for me in, my, in the future financially even. How are you going to provide for me, God? And I don't look in the past, he's provided for me for 48 years. Sometimes even when I'm in a grocery store and you're going through the, uh, the checkout line, it's hard for my eyes not to wander and to look at, you know, all the different magazine covers there with all the women who are dressed in such a way. I thought I'd been over that by now. I'm not. I found myself, this is how bad it gets, getting angry the other week with somebody because of their lack of joy. (laughs) Angry over their lack of joy. I mean, come on. Any of you struggle like this? Please tell me I'm not alone. Any, Any of you struggle? Hear me, if you struggle like this, this is actually a sign that you are a mature and growing Christian. Because the more you grow in Christ, the more you have these woe is me moments. Because the closer you get to Jesus, the more you see your sin. 
It's like closer to a light. And the closer you get to the light and the light, the more and more it begins to expose. You don't become more sinful. You can just see your sin more clearly. And you start to have more of these woe is me moments. I mean, the apostle Paul here. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, when he's talking to Timothy, he called himself the chief of all sinners. Present tense. He doesn't say he was the chief of all sinners. Describing his life as a child of God, as a believer, he says, I am the chief of all sinners. Why? Because as he's gotten closer to Jesus, he's become so aware of his sin. So aware of it, and it bothers him. When you read Romans 7, what you should think of it as is Paul's lament over sin. I actually had time you could go through. There's, there's a series of about three different laments that he has over his sin. Now, when Paul says in verse 18 here, for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For the good I wish I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not wish. I realize that's probably not what is in there. I, anytime I just quote a scripture, it's... it's uh, it's like King James, NIV, New American Standard, and ESV combined. Don't, don't try to find it's the Joel Brooks version there. Uh, and I've always just, the good I wish I do not do, but I practice the very evil I do not wish. When Paul says that, I don't think he's actually talking about one particular sin that he keeps going to over and over and over. Although I'm sure that was true in parts of his life. I don't think that's what he's talking about here, that he just keeps going back to this one sin over and over. I think what he's saying is this, in light of his entire argument in Romans 7. When he became a believer, the Spirit of God came inside him, gave him a new heart, and now for the first time he looks at the law of God and he delights in it. He looks at it and he's like, wow, it's beautiful. I want to do that. I mean, I want to do all of it. Uh, I, I, want to, I want to like do all of the, uh, the ways I could be just, all the ways I could serve the poor, all the ways I could be kind, all of the ways I could speak truth, all the ways I could be encouraging. I, I want to do all of this. And then he falls short. I mean, he sees such a beautiful picture of what it means to be human, how God created us, presented to us in the law, and he's like, I want it all. Oh. <sighs> I'm, I'm not doing very well. Woe is me. Who will set me free from this body? The best way I could describe it is this. Um, I grew up in a household of musicians. Um, everyone in my household plays um, an instrument or two or three. And uh, old reference, we were like the Partridge family. Okay, We're always like around just, just playing songs together. Uh, so I grew up, um, you know, my mom was a piano teacher, so I had to take lots of piano, uh, grew up playing drums, piano, um, enough guitar to play praise songs. Um, you know, you only have to know four chords, four chords in the truth. Uh, and so <laughs> I, I grew up, you know, able to do all that. And so I do love playing, but I also, I enjoy writing songs. Uh, I still do today some. I, I enjoy writing. And occasionally, this is how writing a song hits you. Um, you could be doing whatever. Rarely is it when you sit down like, I'm going to write a song. Uh, you're, you're doing whatever, and all of a sudden, it just hits you, this new melody. You, you just hear it. And it's, it's this gorgeous melody. 
You're like, oh my gosh. And, and you hear all the complexities of it, the beauty, the chorus, like all of this together. And you're like, nobody talk to me. I gotta, I gotta go and I gotta start writing this, this song down. And so you, you rush and you all go to the piano and the song is all there. And then I just begin to like, you know, chicken peck the keys. And, and I'm, I'm trying, to, trying to recreate this melody and I just, I can't. I'm just chicken pecking it. And finally I'm like, ah, woe is me. Woe is me. Like, that doesn't even come close to communicating the beauty that, that I've just heard. I have fallen short of the glory of the song. I have sinned. Do you get that? I have fallen short of the glory of the song. I mean, when I heard the song, it's like I came alive in my head. I came alive. It's like, oh, that's so beautiful. I was filled with joy. I'm like, and now I want to play it and I fall short. Oh, wretched man that I am. I wish I could play it. That's what Paul is saying here. That's what he means here. He, he doesn't want to fall short of the glory, but he does. So he says, who will deliver me from this body of death? The answer is Jesus. Jesus. This is our hope, our confident hope, that someday all of the beauty that you see and you hear in your Lord and Savior Jesus Christ all of that beauty will someday be true of you. You won't just fail. I know right now you see Jesus and you're like, you see the glory and you're like, I want it all. I want to be as kind as him, as forgiving as him, as compassionate as him, as powerful as him. I want to be as generous as him. Like, you're like, I want it all. Like, I fail. But someday you won't fail. It's the glory of the gospel. Jesus says that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. That's what Paul says about Jesus. Jesus who began a good work in us will perfect it. Someday we will be like him. Until then, we will struggle. There's glory in the struggle. But we will struggle. And through the Holy Spirit, as day after day goes by, hopefully we begin to look a little more and a little more like our Savior but we anxiously long. Our prayer is always Maranatha. Lord Jesus, will you come? Pray with me. Jesus, I thank you that we do have the ability now to struggle with sin. We're no longer enslaved to it. We're no longer dead because of it. You've given us a new life and we can fight it. And I pray that you, through your spirit, we would fight that sin well. Lord, we know that till, until we are with you, we will always fall short of your glory. But I pray that we would relish your glory. We would constantly behold your glory. And as a result, as every day that passes by, we might become more and more like it. And we pray this all in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.